You unbuckle your seatbelt and stand up, stretching your legs after a long flight. You head towards the restroom and think about freshening up. Suddenly, you're in the air. Luggage flies around you. It feels like the world is ending. You're 30,000 feet above the ground, and you're heading for a crash landing. Before you have any more time to think, everything goes black. In early 2001, a massive Boeing 747 carrying over 400 people took off from Tokyo Haneda International Airport. The flight progressed like normal until it reached 39,000 feet and coasting speed. Food was being served, and passengers were up and about like they would be on any other journey. Slightly earlier in the day, a Japanese airline flight between Busan, South Korea, and Tokyo, Japan had begun in a similar fashion. This one was smaller, with about 250 people on board. It had also started coasting at around 37,000 feet. Both of these planes were on a similar flight path, only 2,000 feet apart, and due to meet over the Japanese island of Honshu. They were both close to this intersection when the pilot of the Boeing 747 noticed his anti-collision indicator going off. This was when he first knew something was wrong. One of the critical aspects of modern air travel is the coordination of air traffic control. Every flight is monitored, and pilots are advised if anything goes wrong. The entire point of air traffic control is to organize flights so well that collisions are impossible. Every modern plane is built with collision monitors, but they are never supposed to be used because of this. While the anti-collision indicators buzzed, 26-year-old trainee Hideki Hachitani was sitting behind the radars at the control tower, monitoring both flights. The stress of having to oversee more than 10 planes was overwhelming him. This isn't surprising, given that he wasn't even certified to operate by himself without supervision. When he noticed the potential collision, he rushed to prevent a disaster. He quickly contacted the flight from Busan that was cruising at 37,000 feet and told them to dip lower, trying to create a bigger gap between the planes. In his rush, though, Hachitani had made a terrible mistake. He had contacted the wrong plane. Instead of telling the Boeing 747 to reduce its altitude, the pilot of the other plane followed Hachitani's instructions and lowered from 39,000 feet to 37,000 feet, the exact same height as the 747. Both planes sped toward each other at 500 miles per hour on a collision course. Hachitani was beginning to panic now. When he noticed that the flight from Busan hadn't descended, he quickly instructed it to turn right. The pilot had, of course, failed to follow the instructions given because they'd been sent to the wrong plane. For an unknown reason, the instruction to turn right failed to reach anyone at all this time. The communications from air traffic control were failing, and the pilots didn't have any idea of how much danger they were in. When seeing Hachitani panicking behind the control panel, his supervisor rushed to the scene and took control of the situation. She contacted the flight from Busan and now told it to climb up. Amazingly, when she did this, she gave the order to a flight that wasn't even operating that day. Both of the flights ignored her because they didn't know that the message was intended for them. The Boeing pilot was at least aware that there was another plane close by. 
but his faith in air traffic control would have comforted him. Surely, if anything was badly wrong, someone would send him more instructions? At this point, the crash was beginning to look inevitable. For the passengers on the flights, though, everything would have seemed to be normal. They might have been eating some snacks, stretching their legs, or maybe waiting in line for the toilet, completely unaware that they were on course to fly straight into another plane. Luckily for all of the 600-plus people involved, the pilot was well-trained and confident in a situation that would cause most people to freeze up. Through his windscreen, he saw something that no pilot should ever see. Another plane heading directly for him. With cat-like reflexes and remarkable composure, the Boeing pilot gripped the throttle and steered the plane down as low as he could for the seconds he had before the collision. The Boeing flew straight underneath the other flight. Imagine being a pilot and seeing the ground in front of you instead of the sky. They both made it out intact. This man had saved the lives of more than 600 people. That isn't to say that everyone got out without a scratch. The passengers were completely unaware of the entire incident, so barely any were buckled in. They were powerless as the change in direction threw them against the inside of the plane. Out of nowhere, with the plane's sudden movement, many hit the roof with the force of a car crash. Every unsecured object and person were thrown through the air. Some might have even felt like the plane had just hit the ground. Miraculously, only seven passengers and two crew members were seriously injured, and the rest only received minor injuries. The pilot circled back to Tokyo to allow all of the injuries to be treated. Thanks to the quick response of medical teams and unbelievable decision-making and skill shown by the pilot, everyone on the flight survived. Every time you travel on a plane, you're signing up to shoot through the sky at speeds of up to 500 miles per hour in a fragile metal shell. You're surrounded by enormous, dangerous motors six or seven miles above the ground. Surely there's no way you'd survive if the plane itself started to fail. The Hudson Bay landing shows that skilled pilots can overcome seemingly insurmountable odds. On January 15, 2009, Flight 1549 was set to fly from New York to North Carolina. The pilot, Chesley Sullenberger, was a former jet pilot who converted to commercial flights in the 1980s. The sky was clear and the conditions were favorable. It was a typical flight for all of the 155 passengers on board until the worst happened just a minute and a half in. As the plane climbed to 3,000 feet, they hit a flock of Canada geese. They hit the entire plane, but most importantly, some geese got caught in both engines. When Sullenberger realized that his engines were failing, he contacted air traffic control. They ordered him to land back at the airport, but he realized that it was impossible. With failing engines and no clear runway to land on, he had to take control of the situation to save the lives of everyone on board. Without full control of his plane, he wasn't able to operate at the normal altitude. He flew so low that he passed over the George Washington Bridge at only 900 feet. The people on the bridge were terrified to see the plane so close, but they had no idea how bad things were on board. With the plane speeding at 140 miles per hour, Sullenberger saw the Hudson River in front of him 
and he had no choice but to land on it. A plane with no identification marks is approaching the coast of Indonesia. It's not the most peaceful of times, and the flight operator is alarmed. Two fighter jets take to the sky, about to take down the unidentified plane. It's all about to end in a disaster, when the fighters notice one strange detail. December 1st, 1941. Captain of a Boeing 314, Robert Ford and his team are preparing for one of the longest flights on one of the biggest planes in the world. The Boeing 314 Clipper California is a high-capacity seaplane. It has no landing gear, so it can only land on water. Its length is 100 feet, and its wingspan is 150 feet. This is more than a six-story building, and on board this plane, there is a restaurant, resting areas, and even a room with a bed. Despite its size, the Clipper California can stay in the air for more than 18 hours. Captain Ford doesn't suspect what is awaiting him ahead. He gets on the plane. Their flight is bound from San Francisco to Auckland, New Zealand. The first stop is Los Angeles. There's no problem with this. The next stop is Pearl Harbor. The flight is going fine. December 7, 1941. It's been three days since the plane left Pearl Harbor. The last final step of the journey remains. Flight to New Zealand. At this moment, Captain Ford receives an order to return the plane to the nearest Allied base. The way back is closed, so the plane continues to fly to Auckland. The Clipper lands safely at the Auckland airport and receives an order that seems impossible. Robert Ford and his team must paint over all the registration and identification marks on the plane and deliver it to LaGuardia, New York. Then, fly across the world. This is an uncharted route with a length of 23,000 miles. In the entire history of aviation at this time, no one has flown such a distance. The team doesn't have maps or modern navigation devices. They don't know the lands they will fly over. They don't know who they may meet on their way and at which airports they will land. They must maintain and repair the plane themselves, extract fuel, and plot the route. At the same time, they have almost no money. Immediately after receiving the order, the team goes to the Auckland Library. They study all the atlases and maps to create a detailed flight plan. First, they need to get to Australia, then fly to Africa along the coast of Asia, and then they should go to the US. The crew paint all over the signs on the plane and prepare for takeoff. Fortunately, before the start, one banker finds about their situation and gives them $500. The plane takes off. The team didn't notice they forgot to paint over the American flag. In a few days, it will save their lives. Before Australia, they fly to New Caledonia to evacuate a group of people from there and deliver them to Australia. The operation is successful. In Australia, the team needs to refuel the plane. They don't find special transport for Clipper services at that airport, so the crew themselves transport 800 cans of gasoline. And here's an important detail. The Boeing 314 doesn't use conventional fuel. It needs to be filled with special high-octane aviation gasoline. Early in the morning, the Clipper takes off and heads to Indonesia. The flight is going fine. They are approaching the airport. Meanwhile, the captain of the base where the Clipper is supposed to land notices an unidentified plane. He doesn't know who's flying it and from where. No one warned him about it. It may be an enemy plane. Two fighter jets take to the sky. They are approaching the Clipper and don't see any identification marks on its body. The pilots are about to attack, but at that moment, they notice an American flag. If Robert Ford hadn't forgotten to paint it over, then everything would have ended badly for him and his crew. The fighters allow landing. The clipper lands on the water, 
A boat floats towards it to meet the plane's crew, but stops. It turns out the plane landed on a place filled with sea mines, so the boat doesn't dare to sail there. The clipper approaches the port and miraculously avoids contact with mines. Robert Ford and the crew of the plane are well met. They are going too quickly to rest and hit the road. But then, a big problem surfaces. The plane is running out of fuel, and at that naval base, there is only ordinary automobile gas. Nobody knows if the plane engine is going to go with it. It may burn out or stop working altogether, but there's no choice. They fill the tanks with ordinary fuel. Captain decides to take off using the remnants of aviation fuel, and during the flight, they switch to tanks with ordinary gasoline. When this happens, the plane's engine begins to clap and rattle, but after a while, it calms down. The flight continues. For 19 hours, they fly on dangerous fuel. Their next stop is Ceylon. The sky is covered with clouds. The pilot doesn't see the coast in the airport, so he decides to lower the plane below the clouds. They fly at an altitude of 300 feet above the surface of the sea and notice a huge whale ahead. The plane flies closer, and it turns out it's not a whale. It's an enemy ship. The clipper begins to gain altitude to hide back into the clouds. Finally, they are again surrounded by a white veil. The booms and blasts are heard behind and below the plane. The clipper's flying with zero visibility for 60 minutes. Finally, the clouds are clearing and they see the port of Ceylon. The team makes a short stopover and proceeds with its journey. As soon as the plane takes off, one of the engines explodes. Fortunately, they didn't have time to fly far from the port, so they successfully landed the plane on the water and repaired the engine. The clipper continues its mission. Now. Robert Ford's team flies mainly over land. This is very risky, since the aircraft doesn't have landing gear and it can't safely land on solid ground. Finally, they get to the Congo. The team has a great time here, gains strength, rests, and most importantly, gets high-octane aviation gasoline. Things are going great, but there's another ordeal ahead. Now, the aviators will have to make the longest flight in their journey. Their next stop is a port town in Brazil, and the distance to it is 3,500 miles across the ocean. The maximum flight distance of the Boeing is 3,700 miles. Any deviation from the course or a strong headwind can easily prevent the aircraft from reaching the port. Worried, the crew refill the tank and load additional fuel onto the plane. They leave the Congo, taking off along the narrow river. At this moment, the pilot notices the river ends a few miles away with a waterfall. The plane must urgently gain altitude, but it can't. The large amount of additional fuel bears the clipper down. The waterfall is getting closer. In the last seconds, the plane manages to rise to the desired height. But even after the waterfall, Boeing still doesn't get high enough. It hovers right above the rocky coastal cliffs. A slight inclination can lead to a crash. Fortunately, they manage to pass unharmed. You've probably seen Hollywood movies where somehow a small hole opens up in the side of a plane and then immediately it's utter chaos. Food trays and bags flying, seat belts barely holding passengers in place. Luckily, in reality, small damage to the fuselage won't cause such dramatic consequences. But would you believe me if I told you there was a pilot that managed to land a plane with half the roof torn completely off? Buckle up. At 1.25 p.m. on April 28, 1988, a 19-year-old Boeing 737 that belonged to Aloha Airlines, left Hilo International Airport and headed for Honolulu. The plane was named after Queen Liliokalani, who was the last sovereign monarch of the Kingdom of Hawaii. On that day, the aircraft already had three short flights 
from Honolulu to Hilo, Maui, and Kauai. Apologies to the people of Hawaii for any mispronounced names. Anyway, all the trips were regular and uneventful. The weather was calm, and it seemed like nothing could go wrong. The captain was experienced pilot Robert Shorns Timer, 44 years old, who had 6,700 flight hours in the Boeing 737. The first officer was Madeline Tompkins, 36 years old, who had flown more than 3,500 hours in the very same Boeing model. Early in the morning, still in Honolulu, the first officer had conducted the regular pre-flight inspection and announced that the plane was ready for the flight. At 11 a.m., the plane left Honolulu and headed for Maui and then to Hilo. When the plane arrived at the destination, the pilots didn't leave the cockpit or inspect the aircraft from the outside. After all, it wasn't a requirement, so they didn't have to. Following schedule, the plane started the last leg on the routine round trip at 1.25 p.m. There were 95 people on board the aircraft, 89 passengers, two pilots, three flight attendants, and an FAA traffic controller who stayed in the observer seat in the cockpit. After a normal takeoff and ascent, the plane got to the usual cruising altitude of 24,000 feet, and then, at about 1.48 p.m., 26 miles away from Kaolui, the unexpected happened. Those who were in the cockpit heard a loud whooshing sound and then a crack, followed by the deafening sound of wind seconds later. Apparently, a small part of the roof on the left side tore loose, which led to the explosive decompression of the plane. But the worst thing was that the decompression caused a ripple effect, which led to a huge section of the airplane's roof to tear off completely. The length of the missing part was 18.5 feet long. It was all part of the aircraft's skin that covered the plane from the cockpit back to the four-wing area. At first, the pilots didn't realize what had happened. The first officer, who was in control of the aircraft at that moment, felt her head jerk backward, and she noticed debris and gray pieces of insulation flying chaotically around the cockpit. When the captain turned his head, he saw that the cockpit door had disappeared, and instead of the first-class ceiling, he was staring at a clear blue sky. The plane started to roll from side to side, and it was becoming increasingly harder to control. Everybody who was in the cockpit immediately put on their oxygen masks, and the captain took over the aircraft. He prod the speed brakes into action, and began an emergency descent towards the nearest airport, which was on Maui Island. Luckily, all the passengers were in their seats at the moment when the accident happened, and since the seatbelt sight was still on, everyone had their seatbelts fastened. However, all three flight attendants were standing along the aircraft aisle. The one who was the closest to the front of the plane was swept out through the hole in the roof. The other two were thrown to the floor by a forceful jerk. But while one of them hit her head really hard and lost consciousness, the other one started to crawl along the aisle in an attempt to help passengers and calm them down. At that same time, the pilots were trying to contact air traffic control and signal an emergency. To make matters worse, they couldn't hear each other and had to use gestures to communicate. They also didn't know whether the radio worked and whether they had managed to deliver their message. The flight controls were sluggish and loose, and the captain was struggling to control the plane. The first officer, right by his side, dealing with communication and assisting the captain. It turned out that the controller hadn't been receiving the crew's messages until the aircraft descended to the altitude of 14,000 feet. Only then did the signal get through and Maui Tower started urgent preparations for an emergency 
landing. The problem was that at that time, in case of an emergency, the airport control tower had to dial 911 just like anyone else. On top of that, the controller didn't catch that the passengers and crew members would need medical help. After all, the crew only announced that they had experienced a rapid decompression. So the controller wasn't aware of the entire gravity of the situation. In the meantime, the plane had already dropped to a height of 10,000 feet above sea level. The captain removed his oxygen mask and withdrew the speed brakes. The plane was steadily descending toward runway 2 of Kaolui Airport. Following the captain's command, the first officer lowered the landing gear, but the indicator light didn't come on. That could mean that either they had a bad light, or they had serious problems with the nose gear. But that wasn't the only problem. As the plane was approaching the runway, the left engine failed, and the aircraft started rocking and shaking. The captain made an attempt to restart the engine, but didn't succeed. And yet still, with the help of the reverse thrust of the second still-working engine, at 1.58 p.m., just 10 minutes after the emergency and 35 minutes after the takeoff, Aloha Airlines Flight 243 did manage to touch down on the runway of Kaolui Airport and come to a complete stop. Landing a plane with such a huge loss of integrity was an unprecedented feat. As soon as the plane stopped, the evacuation began. Everyone on the plane, except for the one flight attendant who had been pulled out of the plane, was alive, although 65 people were injured. Most people had been hurt by flying debris and torn pieces of fuselage. Unfortunately, since nobody on the ground had known how serious the situation was, no ambulances were waiting for the injured. The first one arrived seven minutes after the plane landed, and there were only two ambulances on the entire island, which obviously couldn't fit all the people. That's why the passengers had to be transported to the hospital in several 15-passenger tour vans that belonged to the company Akamai Tours. Luckily, two Akamai drivers used to be paramedics, so they started to tend to the injured right on the runway. Meanwhile, airport mechanics, as well as office staff, drove the vans to the hospital, which was three miles away. Luckily, there were only eight serious injuries, from which all of these passengers later recovered. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.